back. Pulls up for three. Boom! Knocks it down. Curry from the corner at three. Puts it in. For overtime. Makes it. Garrett. Welcome to the MVP cast, sponsored as ever by Total Environmental Compliance. Check out their services at tecompliance.co.uk. We have a very special guest this time out. He's one of the proudest alumni, most successful graduates of the British Basketball League. The only man ever to win the BBL and this other little competition called the NBA Championship. He is our good friend, Nick Nurse. Nick, how are you? Good, Mark. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be on the shores of Britain once again, albeit via the internet, Zoom, podcast. How extraordinary has the past two and a half years been for you? Because you were in the UK when you got this job offer to be the head coach of the Toronto Raptors. And here you are, coach of the year in the NBA, NBA champion last year. Has it... Has it flown by? What's the last two and a half years been like? Uh, yeah, I would say flown by is, is a pretty good way. I mean, the only thing that's kind of pumped the brakes on it at all has been the, uh, the pandemic, you know, since March. I mean, I think the, the moment of getting hired all the way through the first season, the championship, rolling into the next year, um, was cruising along at, at breakneck pace, I would say. So, um yeah, just, just, I don't know, Mark, sum it up. Incredibly fortunate to be given uh, this opportunity. And, you know, normally when you get a first-time NBA head coaching job, your your team's not very good. <laughs> <laughs> but I was, I was fortunate enough to be given a really, really good team. And then uh, obviously made made a little bit better, and we went on the historic run and, and um, kind of followed it up this year with playing really well again. So it's been... It's been quite an experience, no doubt. Have you had that point where you've pinched yourself about this incredible journey that we're reading it about it in your your amazing new book, which is called Rapture. 15 teams, four countries, one NBA championship and hard to find a way to win. Damn near everywhere. I mean, no one's really done this in the same manner that you have. I mean, it, has there been points where you've kind of sat back from this and gone, Blimey. Well, I mean, for, for, for sure. I mean, I think um, uh, as the time ticks on, I think you look back and scratch your head and wonder how you got here sometimes. You know, you're you're thinking about being in a broken down mini minibus outside of Newcastle, you know, <laughs> 20, 25 years ago. And now you're now you're in a truck in a in a parade with three or four million people, you know, so it's. It's uh, you have to stop and kind of think back and pinch yourself once in a while and and just uh, kind of relish the road, right? It was the journey. It's I always say it's about the journey and and the journey's kind of what the book's about. Um, and uh, just kind of letting that all out there a little bit and uh, enjoying that journey. Describe the difference because you talk a lot in the book about obviously the learnings from coaching a lot of games, and that's the you said you know the experience that you get from that even compared to being an assistant, is so invaluable. I mean, we talked a lot during those NBA finals. Guys, we talked about here's a play that I drew up that I last used in 
London in whatever year, you know, and then you're throwing it into this NBA Finals game at the most, ex- you know, unexpected moment. But you know, how how much of that toolkit translated directly from you being a head coach in Birmingham or London or Manchester to Toronto? Well, I think uh, in totality, Mark, almost all of it, right? I think I think you know you're talking about reaching into a play you know, that's in your bag of tricks or, or your toolkit or whatever that, that suddenly appears out of nowhere in your front of your brain and you're drawing it up 10 years later and you haven't used it. That's one thing. But the other thing about, you know, man management, the psychology of the team, the feel, the pulse, the chemistry, the roles, um, all the things that I say really comprise coaching or managing a team that was being honed in all those jobs, you know, and, and um, little did I know it then, you know, like I think coaches and even fans tend to um, put a lot of emphasis on the X's and O's or the tactics of the game. And those are definitely important. No doubt about it. But the things you learn when you're up in front of the team as a head coach is, is um, you know, just kind of your pulse of your team. And, that, and that's really, really important. I mean, take us back to that that first job with Derby. Even Tim Tim Rogers, the general manager, owner, kit washer, probably at the time as well. How did that come about in terms of that that approach? Well, I, I um, it came about through a guy named Chris Squire. If you if you remember that name, Chris Squire was a coach at Derby, um, and Chris was a friend of a guy in my hometown by the name of Bill Badley. Bill Badley had been going to the UK for years doing basketball camps. And uh, I just asked him um, if he knew anybody, any overseas contacts. I was thinking about trying to play basketball overseas. I just finished playing at the University of Northern Iowa, and he gave me Chris Squire's mailing address. And I put together a big, what do they call those, manila envelope packet, <laughs> clippings and resume and CV and, and all that stuff, and sent it to Chris Squire. He passed it on to Tim Rudge, and Tim Rudge picked up the phone and called me. Said uh, it says here, you want to be a player or a coach overseas, and he said, "How about both?" <laughs> Three days later, I was on the plane to Derby and sitting in a pub with Tim Rudge, ironing out the the finer details. What was that initial impression like of this country and the league as it was then? Oh, it was so just just from landing and getting picked up and riding up, and I mean, I mean, uh, I was young. I was twenty two. I was totally excited. I was out to see the world, out to conquer the world. I didn't sleep on the flight. I didn't sleep on the ride up. I didn't, you know, um, gosh, it's, it's funny. Even the the great referee, Roger Harrison was the one who picked me up at the airport. He was, (laughs) he was a club volunteer for Derby at the time. And, uh, so those are, that's another good story. Roger picks me up and we go up there and I, I remember going to the pub with Tim Rudge and he said, first things first, you got to score between 20 and 25 points. And I remember going, geez, that isn't really my game. I'm kind of a set up pass first point guard. I've only averaged 10 or 12 points a game my whole career. And, and uh, so just lots of little um, adjustments to everything as you can imagine as, as we went along. Was there ever a point, I mean, and there must have been, through bus trips with Martin Ford at the, the, the steering wheel, that's enough to scare most people. Was there ever a point in that kind of year where you thought, 
this this is way too hard a profession. I just should go and be an accountant and settle down in the Midwest somewhere. No, not 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 only only once did I uh, the the minibus story that's in the book. The minibus broke down. Uh, Martin was we were out there walking in. The, you know, this is pre cell phone uh, days, <laughs> and uh, and I do I do kind of remember looking out into the deep dark night and saying, uh, "A, where am I? And B, what the hell? What the hell am I doing here? You know?" And uh, but no, I was. I was enjoying it. I was loving. I was loving playing. Um, had a great group of guys. You mentioned Martin Fort, Tim Lascelles, Dave Roper, Terry Mangum, uh, Mike Landell. You know, there was all kinds of all kinds of good guys. Uh, Ernest Lee was playing uh, as our other American. We were having fun, man. We were hooping. I was trying to figure out how to coach him a little bit. Mostly, I was just kind of. More like a team captain leading, leading by example <laughs> on the court, you know. And um, no, not not that year. I didn't. I didn't want to turn around. And come home. I was having a great time. I mean, you came back to the states, and then you came back here again with Birmingham. And obviously, you arrived then at just that point where the league was big time. You know, big arenas, pretty big budgets for that era in European terms. You know, he was on Sky on a Sunday, Saturday night. Coming into that role, did was that probably the time where you thought, you know, this is, this is something I can really take on and I can learn and grow. And I guess, you know, we talk about philosophy a lot with coaches, but to develop that philosophy. Yeah, I think I came back the second time in 95, you mentioned the arenas popped up, the sky TV deal kicked in, um, some, some very well-known owners taken over as well. Um, and I was an assistant coach at the time at the University of South Dakota. I just wanted to get back into head coaching. And really, it was it was crunch time for me. I wanted to see if I was any good. And that this, I was truly going to make this a profession. And um, that was a, that was kind of the, the year that determined that, I would say. I, I certainly, um, you know, we won the title that, that year, my first year back in Birmingham. And... Uh, Away we went from there. We've been managed to stay employed as a coach ever since. <laughs> was there a point? That was a make or break year. Was there a point in that year where it went from bright to make? I mean, because it's easy to judge by the title, but was there that sort of light bulb to you that thought, actually, yeah, I can, I've got this? Well, the year didn't start out very good. We were five hundred. Um, you know, there's a, there's a great story in there. Where again, this is this is the time where I. I think we were eight and eight or six and six or something like that. And, and I hadn't made much improvement. The team, the, the, the team the year before was exactly 500, I think 18 and 18. So I hadn't made a whole hell of a lot of an impression really. Um, and I did go back to the, the hotel there. I was living in Brahms Grove at the hotel and um, wrote down four other things I thought I might want to do with my life. And, <laughs> I looked at them on a the piece of paper and they all looked like absolute shit to me. So I figured, I figured I better get to work and studying on coaching and get, get, get in gear. And then, uh, I don't know. It seemed like I, I felt uh, much more at ease and I kind of quit squeezing so hard and kind of let the team play a little bit. And, um, we started playing well and obviously went on that tremendous run. I mean, the Rubaleski brothers owned the bullets and Harry was the guy that was on point and they also in the Sydney Kings at the time and Harry was quite a character how much 
you know, were you kind of given the freedom to do what you want? Or was that, you know, like a lot of owners at the time were sort of sitting on you putting pressure. I mean, what, what was the, what was the kind of pressure like to win? Oh yeah, there was, there was big time pressure. We wanted to win every night. Right. I think, I think, um, Harry was a good, um, partner for me or, or, uh, it was great lessons. They sit in the office. We sit in the office together all day, me and him, um, trying to figure out how to put bums on seats, you know? So it was a, it was a hard working job. It was a long hours, a lot of, a lot of focus, um, on the job and still trying to coach the team in between and, and sounds silly, but those kind of things prepared me too. Um, having so much work outside of the actual coaching to do is similar to what I'm doing now, you know, with handling the media and handling sponsors and events and meet and greets and marketing. And, you know, that's, that's similar to the job now. And that was good practice back then to be, to be doing that all day, every day. But no, I think the, the pressure to win was, was real. We thought if we didn't win then nobody wanted to come watch us. And one of Harry's most classic lines was, was this and kind of reverse to that is it makes no sense to win in front of nobody. So let's put bums <laughs> in the seats and let's win. And let's kind of keep that little, little circle turning, you know, does it connect you a little bit now? Because obviously it's a very elevated role being an NBA head coach and you, your focus is quite narrow by the nature of the job because the job is so big, but does it, it give you a, I guess, more of an appreciation than maybe some of your counterparts would have of, the people behind the people behind the scenes? Well, I think that maybe, uh, again, I can't walk in anybody else's shoes, but, you know, there'll be times when when you'll be asked to, right before the game, go maybe shake hands with a few people that are really important to the team owner or something. I've been doing that my whole life. You know, that's, that's the kind of things we're doing, we're doing all the time, right? Taking, snapping photos, shaking hands, doing uh, welcoming people to games and um, just kind of part of, part of a game day for me. So no, no, uh, no worries. There was a guy you mentioned last year and I suppose most of the people who would listen to you at the time would have had a blank stare. You said the best player I'd ever coached I'm not sure if you qualified up to now, so I'm not sure if it was about Kawhi or not, it was Tony Dorsey. And, you know, again, not a name globally known, but what, you know, for you and I remember about that era, he was immense. What was it like to coach someone that was so talented all round in a league like this at that time? Well, it was a great experience for me, Mark. I think I got to that team. He had already been to Birmingham a year before I got there. And um, just when I like first initially saw him, I was like, this guy's going to be amazing, right? Like, like, how can I start figuring out how to use this guy and make sure he's the best player in the league? And that's very similar, you know, to what you, what you're, what you see. Well, I saw uh, in the years to come, lots of times you'd get a team and you'd see a guy, Curtis Stinson with Iowa, becomes MVP of the league. Andrew Goudlock with Rio Grande Valley becomes MVP of the league. Uh, I did have a conversation with Kawhi about trying to become MVP of the league. He was he wasn't really interested, but that was <laughs> he just wanted to he just wanted to, to he just wants to play a long time and win titles, which is another thing. But I just I don't know get you get me started on a path of coaching greatness. Tony Grossi was great. He was he was certainly the big big fish in that pond, and. Um, it was all practical experience for me. 
Who, who did you enjoy coaching the most during your time in this country? Oh, well, there's, there was a lot of guys. Um, you know, obviously Tony, Nigel Lloyd was great. He was on that team, right? Um, Ronnie Baker, I had a couple different teams. Um, fabulous Flanoy, obviously he's, he's working for me now. Whatever happened to him, yeah. I'm an assistant coach, so I must have enjoyed coaching him if I, if I got him with me now. But lots of guys, lots of guys, Mark. Yeah, I mean, Manchester and London, obviously the, the next stops. But is it true that you were within... 24 hours of becoming the first coach of the then Edinburgh Rocks. Pretty close. Yeah, pretty close. Um, did, did go up an interview and did get offered the job. And uh, um, that was, that was uh, almost a turn we took. Yeah. What a, what a lovely place. We could have been neighbors. It was so close. <laughs> with, with Manchester and London, I mean, obviously these, these, it was that the game was at its peak here and they were, you know, big ambitions from, you know, Jay Goldberg, who was the GM and the Cook Group, who owned the Giants and Rick Taylor at, at London. With each of those stops, did you find that, you know, that experience and it grew exponentially on the knowledge based on just doing more games or how do you pick up different cultures or different sort of learnings from the players that you're with? Well, I think each of those stops were unique, right? Manchester was um, in this situation of they couldn't win the big one, right? There were great teams, great players pouring lots of money in and couldn't, no silverware to show for it. So the pressure, uh, being able to handle that, put together a team, handle the outside noise of, of kind of being the most hated club in England and still being able to play through that, <laughs> Um no, that was a good experience. And then obviously the towers, the year at the towers was amazing because we were playing in at least four different competitions at once. We were playing in the Euro league first time ever. We were playing in the Northern European basketball league in which we played, I believe 15 of our 17 mm -hmm. games on the road. Um, and we were also playing in the trophy, the cup and the BBL league. I remember in the locker room, we actually had posters up of each, where we stood in each competition. <laughs> we were literally playing four games in four different competitions in one week. And it was, it was almost hard to keep track of it all. The games were just coming. I think we played something like close to 90 games that year, but amazing 17 different countries. I think we played in that year, Mark. I just remember getting that year done and, and, uh, crawling into bed for about 10 days <laughs> to try to recover from all that travel and, and all that stuff that we did. But what an amazing experience that was. I spoke to Phil Handy, of course, was your assistant last season about that very last game in Manchester when you guys won everything. You know, you won yeah. the playoff. And then the owners come in and say, thanks, here's some extra money, but we're all done. What was that like for you, having him so emotionally invested yourself as you do in, in a t club and a team and a success? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like um, there's part of you uh, looking back that says, well, that's kind of basketball coaching overseas for you. You know, that, that kind of stuff around every corner, that stuff is coming. Um, and two, is like you're thankful, really, in the end. It was probably 
a job if they wouldn't have done that. We all would have stayed forever, right? And because it was such a great, great city, great job, great organization, we were all we were winning a lot, having fun, and 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 making a making a good living, coaching there and playing there. So sometimes you got to get pushed out the door to grow, and and there 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 it was. Having seen the tough side of basketball and the financial realities. You then went and bought a team, or you bought into a team and then ended up owning the team in Brighton Bears. And there's there's a, a lovely line in the book when you say, I hope people don't just remember what happened at the end in Brighton, but that they remember the kind of great points that we had along the way. I mean, to own and coach is an incredibly difficult doubleheader. I mean, describe the kind of roller coaster ride that you had to go through there fulfilling both those roles. Well, it was certainly um, very little coaching. It was kind of, it was kind of, um, that was put on the back burner, but you did it anyway. You know, you, you kind of got into practice right one minute before it started and we're out the door the minute it was done, you know, because you were so many things going. Um, but again, it was, it was, uh, you know, it was, it was difficult and, to make those things work, like like with a lot of things, you need some breaks and you need the ball to bounce your way a little bit. And and as hard as we pushed and the hours we logged and and all the great things that we did do there, we just never really got the break we needed. And um, at the first or last sporting club that that um, had big ambitions and didn't and failed. Would you would you have hired Dennis Rodman for three games again? Oh, for sure. <laughs> for sure. That Des- was, that describe was, that experience. It was exciting. No, it was. It was great. I think it was. Uh, it was a big, big uh, push. Our then, our then major sponsor, uh, Genesis, was uh, really wanting to do it. So it was. There was kind of no, no holding back. Once that idea kind of got pushed to the to the forefront, there was no holding that one back. But it was, it was great. I found him to be a um, uh, interesting, lovely big-hearted person actually he's great what was i mean i mean you're quite open in the book that you brighton left you broke when you headed back to the states and i mean how tough was that again because you know we saw other teams it wasn't exactly the first team that had gone down that route but you'd taken so much on and it's all that work that you put in over three four years for that to happen i mean forget the financial side emotionally what was that like to go through well, it was tough. You know, it was tough. There was a lot of, a lot, a lot, a lot of sleepless nights, hoping, like I said, hoping that ball was going to bounce the right way the next morning. And um, too bad that it, that it didn't. And um, and just, you know, some, some kind of recovery time that needed to be done, and and uh, picking yourself up off the floor and trying to, trying to get going again. It wasn't certainly wasn't easily easy financially at all that was difficult as as could be and mentally as well was there anything you would do differently from the way that 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 whole franchise ran out nope i i think i think um well we put it we put a tremendous honest effort forward right and that, and that's all we can we can live with certainly um certainly nobody wants it to end that way so you probably <laughs> say why didn't that happen why didn't this happen but i think again it was more we just needed just needed a little help and a break here and there, but it wasn't for lack of effort or for great intentions. And um, and, and again, work ethic 
just needed a needed a break. So great learning experience again. You know, wouldn't wouldn't change the path. I don't think I don't think we'd change the path <laughs> we went down. That's for sure. I want to ask you about a good friend of ours who who's been with you at various points along this journey um, by the name of Chris Finch. Obviously, first things first, his his name is swirling in circles at the minute to become a head coach in the NBA. You know him so well, and you, I think you tried to hire him in Toronto as well at one point. But what will, as we all hope, make Chris a great head coach in the NBA? Well, he's he's a world-class coach, Mark. I think, think all of us in Britain know that. We saw him. <coughs> we saw him operate there. Him and I were kind of nipping at each other's heels year after year. Him at Sheffield and me at every other club. I was moving <laughs> him to, to Manchester, to London, or wherever, Brighton. Um, but he's 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 uh, similar. He's got a lot of head coaching under his belt. He's um, uh, very intelligent and a good good leader of, of basketball teams. How much do you guys kind of keep in touch? Because you know, his points for his. He kind of helped you with the D League, you know. Then you know you're, you tried to hire him in, in Toronto. I mean, is it nice having that support of someone that's been in you know an almost identical path to you along this? Oh no, we've become very very good friends, Mark. Not ironically, we we didn't like each other that much at, uh, <laughs> at we were competing against each other. But I think there was a there was some get together in Manchester. Um, when I was coaching Manchester, he was coaching Sheffield. We ended up in kind of in a, in a non-basketball setting for the first time and hit it off from there, sharing ideas, and obviously spent all that time. Remarkable time coaching with him at the Great Britain team. Um, I think the things we were doing there, we were, well, he was light years ahead of his time. One, one more result in that Olympics that would have went our way would have probably brought a lot of that great coaching to light. We were really really coaching what I would consider an undermanned team and um, all we needed was one more win to get through and we would have probably uh, shook up the basketball world pretty good there but um, no very good friend very very respected friend um, wish him well and I'm hoping one of these days to get out of bed and see the headlines scrolling across that he's become head coach somewhere. I mean was that a nice way for you both to kind of round off this time in in Britain, you know, regardless of what you know, you'd moved on, sort of in, in sort of team coaching. But was it a was it a sort of cherry on the cake to say, you know, here's a decade I've spent, and now I get to go on this ride leading a country which has been a second home in a sense in such for a big sure. competition. Yeah, for sure, such such, such an honor and such a, um, I, you know, it was kind of for for me. Um, uh, yeah, we put a put a lot of a lot of time in, right? Up and down the motorway and all over the country, <laughs> coaching basketball, trying to trying to spread the gospel, so to speak. And uh, it was a nice way to cap it off. And it was it was certainly a nice way to I don't know, almost ease out of the country too, Mark. If that makes any sense, after living there for so long and being able to come back for six or eight weeks in the summer you know, for, for a number of years, kind of, kind of like, I don't know, it was kind of like, um, slowly taking us off the, off the, uh, the feed a little bit of, of England and putting a cap on it. It really did put a good cap on it. Did you, um, I mean, you talked about 
Chris and you in a social setting in Manchester. But I do want to ask you about one game. And you know what game I'm going to talk about here. 99, 3rd of April. You, Chris versus you, Sheffield Manchester, last game of the season. Winner gets the title. Last second shot, Terrell Myers. Sharks win, Giants lose. Take me back to that second in time. Yeah, incredible setting. Like, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Um, much more incredible setting that I'm aware of, uh, basketball wise. For, I, I think, I think Sheffield kind of had the league wrapped up and faltered in like two games leading into that game. Like this, this, this. Um, I believe it was a Friday afternoon. I believe it was Good Friday, mm-hmm. or if I'm right. But they lost, I think, in Chester. Uh, maybe on a Tuesday night. So this thing only only set up like Wednesday, Thursday, leading into this Friday, if I remember right. And and there was, I don't know how many thousand people there. Do you remember? I think it was 16,000, 17,000. Yeah, yeah. So that was, that was awesome. Winner take all. Um, so that was awesome. Came down to that last play and, and, um, it was cash. I'd only I'd only driven across the Pennines about forty times to watch Sheffield play. <laughs> I, think I, I had a pretty good idea what he was going to run there with the ball out of bounds. I had a had a timeout. He called a timeout. I called a timeout. I I literally drew up the play they were going to run, and as the ball was inbounded, the guy guarding uh, Terrell Myers was was kind of pointing, looking the other way or something. Terrell took off, and there he was, wide open, and the shot went in, and and. Um, I don't know. That's it. I, I, as you can see, I remember a tough loss rather vividly. I, can, I, <laughs> I was going to say 20, 21 years later. Across the floor, I can remember walking <laughs> past my boss Scott May on the way to the locker room and kind of saying, "Well, I drew that. It's a play I drew up." But there we go. Still hurts. They all hurt. Well, pick out one memory. What's the best, best win, best memory you have of BBL? Uh, well, there was, there was a lot of good ones. I can't, I certainly can't, um, I can't, uh, the 96 win with the bullets over the towers, my first year there, hard, hard to beat that one. Uh, the national cup win for Brighton was a huge one. I remember that seemed like, uh, a really big, big thing. We had, a um, I don't know the, the city was really kind of getting um, behind the bears for that one. Uh, the 2000 win with the giants was kind of finally nice to, to put that one to, to bed and get them the big trophy in the end. You've got that British connection still in Toronto on the staff. So you, you poached ruthlessly poached Fab Flanoy from the, the Newcastle Eagles. You've got Alex McKechnie, the Scotland's finest sports scientist slash assistant coach, etc. I mean, is it, do those connections matter in basketball? Where you kind of is it is it nice to have little touches of where you've been with you now? Well, they matter, of course. I think again, Fab's there because of his outstanding work ethic. Uh, I inha- I inherited the Silver Fox. Alex, <laughs> he, was, he was there when I when I um, became head coach. But um, but it's you know it's obviously you know for me it's nice to we we share we share a lot of stories about travels in Scotland and soccer matches and all kinds of things like that. But we, we got, you know, I got Sergio Scarriola from Spain, Marcus Gasol from Spain, Serge Ibaka, Congo, uh, Patrick Matumbo is another assistant from the Congo. Uh, we, we have, we are diverse team, diverse staff. 
diverse organization living in one of the most diverse cities in the in the world we kind of it's kind of how we live and breathe and what's fab's contribution been like in his rookie year well he's been awesome as you might uh might suspect he's works in our player development department he's in there every day on the floor making players better watching film with them breaking down his spare in his free time he's studying game film and trying to learn the nba system and the other coaches moves and maneuvers uh through the game film so he's he's good he's on, he's on his way i got high hopes for him i um think he's got a real chance to to do some big things in the NBA. He's only 47. He hasn't asked, can he make a comeback playing? Yeah, he's, he's 47 going on about 24, <laughs> as, you, as you know, right? <laughs> One of the youngest 47-year-olds around, that's for sure. Let's finish off talking about the Raptors. Obviously, dethroned champions, but you know, the hunger's still there. You know, you guys were you know, close again this year, your Coach of the Year award for recognising all of that. I mean, how... As a head coach, give us a flip. What do you do at this time of year? I mean, obviously the calendar is completely out of whack with with the season having to be moved around coronavirus. But what do you do over the next couple of months before it all starts up again? Yeah, just a couple things, Mark. Like um, um, one is we we um, start in on what's called our summer development, even though it's like you said, the calendar's rearranged it to to more like a winter, fall, fall, winter development, but um, touch points with our players, getting programs ready to go, both um, mentally, physically, and skills, skill-wise. Um, getting ready for the draft, November 18th's draft, so we have to, you know, check out some prospects and get get to make sure we keep that that pipeline going of, of good, hungry, young players that fit our system and, and are willing to grow and develop. And then... Um, Third thing is, is we'll we'll delve into free agency here soon and round out the rest of the roster. We got a couple, couple major free agents on our own roster, and Fred Van Fleet and Serge Ibaka and Mark Gasol, and then we'll have to go see what happens with the rest of our roster. And how will the piano lessons be coming along? Pretty good, pretty good. I got piano and guitar, so I'm, in fact, I got a guitar lesson here in about ninety minutes. So. <laughs> I'm a long ways away on both instruments, but I enjoy trying hard on them, Mark. That, that's why you are the rock star coach of the NBA and the BBL, as was. <laughs> Nate, the book is called Rapture, 15 Teams, 4 Countries, 1 NBA Championship, and Hard to Find a Way to Win, Damn Near Anywhere. It's out next week all over. You can get it in Kindle now if you really want it that quick, but continued success, best of luck, and come back and see us again soon sometime. Okay. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me on. And that is it for this edition of the MVP cast brought to you with our sponsors at Total Environmental Compliance. Search for them on Google or give them a wee follow on social media, please, at TE Compliance Limited. You can get all our previous editions at MVP247.com or subscribe via your podcast provider of choice. Please, though, do leave us a review on yours, preferably a nice one. Or if you want to get in touch with me, reach out via Twitter at Mark Britbull or via our Facebook Another edition of the MVP cast coming very soon. But from me, Mark Woods, thank you very much for listening, and it's goodbye for now. <laughs> <laughs>